Good morning, and welcome to Coastal Conversations here on WERU. We explore issues facing Maine's coastal communities through dialogue with people who live, work, and play on our coast. From fisheries to tourism, from energy to environment, from economy to ecology, we go beyond the social media sound bites, probing deeply into complex issues and solutions. Coastal Conversations is produced with help from the University of Maine Sea Grant Program, whose mission is to support Maine's coastal communities through research, outreach, and education. In partnership with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the University of Maine, Maine Sea Grant brings marine science to Maine people. We're about to engage in the heart and soul of community radio in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our coast and our communities. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, and I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour of Coastal Conversations. Today, our show explores fisheries issues in Maine and the changes the industry has faced in the last half century. A historic exploration of Maine's fisheries is illustrated this summer at the Penobscot Marine Museum in Searsport. The museum is in the middle of a summer-long exhibit called Gone Fishing, the Net Result, Our Evolving Fisheries. The exhibit is based on a treasure trove of historical photos focusing on the commercial fishing industry in the post-World War II era. The museum received the photos in 2012 as a gift from the National Fisherman magazine, the nation's preeminent publication about the commercial fishing industry. According to Jessica Hathaway, the magazine's editor-in-chief, National Fisherman magazine started in 1946 as Maine Coast Fishermen with offices in Midcoast, Maine. As they grew into a national publication and shifted towards digital photography, they realized that their role as a repository for decades of print and slide photos was not a sustainable endeavor. So Hathaway adds, I'm so grateful to the staff and board at Penobscot Marine Museum for providing safe shelter to this part of Maine's fishing history. Their dedication to the preservation of this work and the history of Maine's fishermen is simply invaluable. The Penobscot Marine Museum has been busy digitizing the collection, and already thousands of photos documenting fisheries in Maine and the nation are available online through a searchable database. Hundreds more are on display at the museum right now in the Net Result exhibit. Our Coastal Conversations show today is about how the Penobscot Marine Museum is using this gigantic photographic archive as their inspiration for a year full of fisheries-related exhibits and events to help the public understand the complexities of fisheries past and present in Maine and beyond. Last spring, the museum launched their new exhibit with a fisheries history conference in Belfast, where many speakers illustrated various aspects of changing fisheries. Among them, We'll hear some great storytelling by Glenn Libby, a longtime fisherman and founder of Port Clyde Fresh Catch. Glenn traces the modernization of the gear which enabled catching more and more fish, and then he talks about his own transition to developing a community-supported fishery which focuses not on more and more, but better and fresher. Toward the end of our show, we'll share some information about the Maine Marine Fair event happening at Penobscot Marine Museum September 9 and 10, showcasing some current trends and opportunities in today's seafood markets. Just as a quick FYI, today's show is pre-recorded, so we won't be taking any calls. 
So let's get going. I wanted to start by sharing some of the conversation I recently had with Sipperly Good, collections manager and curator at Penobscot Marine Museum, when I spent a day in Searsport a couple weeks ago to explore the new exhibit. Sipperly gave some details about the events in the exhibits, and she also shared some reflections on the role museums can play in helping the public understand the complexities of issues as layered as commercial fishing. Here's Sipperly. I'm Sipperly Good's collections manager and curator at the Penobscot Marine Museum, and so I care for the collections and help out with exhibits and just create access to our collections. The big exhibit this summer is Gone Fishing, which is a play on words, as in we're going fishing, but also what happens when the fish are gone. So sort of a conservation angle. And so we've had a Gone Fishing exhibit for the last almost decade. And this summer we've expanded a little to net result our evolving fisheries. We have the amazing National Fisherman Collection, National Fisherman is the periodical of record for the fishing industry here, Maine and abroad. And it started out with a Maine coastal news and sort of brought in other ones. So an amazing collection of photos. And so we thought, what's the best exhibit to bring this to life? And so it really shows since World War II, the evolution of our fisheries. And of course it hits on those hot button issues. So in the 1950s, they were worried about ocean warming and, and changes in temperature and what fish were going to come in and out of the fishery. I mean, they were noticing these things, and we think that's a modern-day issue, but they were talking about it back then. Um, dam removal, um, hydropower versus the interests of the fisheries. Um, so that's a key component. And through the photos... You can see the evolution of propulsion. And so so we can go a little back further to sail and rowing. And so up until diesel engines, and we're coming up with new things now. You know, all these, they're thinking up amazing things to move beyond petrol fuels. Um, and steam had a little bit of there too. So we can show the evolution in our exhibit of propulsion. We can talk about how you build a boat. So we had wood, uh, fiberglass, steel, and aluminum, and now we're getting into those composites, you know, and the amazing things we're doing there. And then also the advertisements. How do you find the fish? Sonar was this amazing change in the fishery, and so you can start seeing advertisements for the sonars, which went from intuition and I think the fish are there because I see the seagulls are landing there you know and now we've got sonar that says there's a pocket of fish at 50 feet down and set your nets for that and so um, it's become a much easier to find the fish and so there's all these great technological revolutions that help us find the fish easier but it also means they're easier to to catch. And so um, the history conference that we had this fall with Ted Ames, who's talking about there used to be cod right here on the coast of Maine, and we fished them out, and now they're out on George's Bank, and we think we fished them out there, and and so how do you rebuild stocks? And so 
the exhibit really says, what's the evolution and where do we go from here? Do we go back to the hook and line fishery, which seems archaic, but um, so we can have fun and see what new innovations we have, but also think about how we can conserve our fisheries as they are. So you have received this incredible collection from the National Fisherman magazine, which is now has been for a long time a nationwide magazine mm -hmm. looking at fisheries. And the magazine itself talks about mostly fisheries that are happening today, but you guys are going back and looking right. through these photo collections yes. to, to evaluate the changes that have happened. We've got amazing fishing historians who have used fishing logs in the past, and here's a new resource for them to come in and see. I think we've become a resource for those researchers. Um, we can do a little, we can touch the tip of the iceberg on that, but come to the Penobscot Marine Museum and you can delve deep <laughs> into it. Yeah, it's great. Um, and talk a little bit about the significance of a museum contributing to the body of knowledge about fisheries. Fisheries mm -hmm. is often something that gets discussed in policy arenas, in scientific research arenas, or among fishing industry members themselves, or sort of cross-sections of those right. uh, branches of the industry. But t talk a little bit about the importance or the value or the role of a museum to come in and help right. interpret changes. Change doesn't happen unless you get the consumers involved. And so we're bringing that body of knowledge and presenting it to the public. Um, and so what is the fish on my plate? Why is it there? Um, why tuna over this other species? And so I think museums can help start that conversation. And if you really want to lobby, you know, the fishermen are lobbying Congress. The industry is lobbying, lobbying Congress, but consumers also have a voice and can advocate for whichever side they believe in. And so I think museums really help inform the public. Secondly, as I touched on, having the fishing logs, these regional councils um, are trying to decide what is the baseline? What are we trying to they talk about restoring the levels of, of a fishery, but what is that? And so we have these fisheries, fishing logs, where back in the day they got bounties for the cod. And so in order to get your bounty, you had to say how many fish you had caught. So we have records from the 1800s that they're tallying, this is the number of cod I caught. And so fishing historians and policymakers can go back and say, okay, the baseline for Frenchman's Bay was X, 60 pounds or 60 tons or, you know, and so that gives you a baseline. And so we're helping inform the discussion on, on a policy level. Um, and there's pride in the fisheries. I mean, these families have been fishing for generations. And so when we collect the old fishing, hand fishing reels, we're telling these, these families that your contribution 
to our food industry matters. And so, you know, there's all this debate. Oh, you're for the fishermen. Oh, you're so bad. You've taken all the fish. No, you have fed this nation. We were feeding generations and generations. And there's all this great scientific, the omega threes and how important that is. So there's pride in what they've done. And yes, we can learn how to fish more with conservation and sustainability in mind. But we're saying, no, you did a good job. And this is value. And and it's a dangerous job. I mean, so many people died out on the Grand Banks in these dories. So um, acknowledging their sacrifice to feed a nation. And so I think it's a great way to bring a lot of different people to the table um, to have that conversation. I think museums help with that. That was Cyprily Good, the collections manager and curator at Penobscot Marine Museum, sharing some thoughts on how the museum can play a role in helping understand the history of Maine's fishing industry, and also why it's important to inform consumers about the people, the fishermen behind the seafood on our plates. Last spring, the museum launched their summer-long exploration of the fishing industry with a fisheries history conference held at the Hutchinson Center in Belfast. I asked Sibberly to tell us a bit about the topics the speakers covered at the conference. Everything from the decline of cod and the lessons learned from the booming lobster industry to historical fish recipes and emerging seafood trends. In a minute, we'll hear Glenn Libby, a fisherman who spoke at the conference. But first, let's have Sipperly give us an overview of all the speakers to pique your interest in case you want to log on to PenobscotMarineMuseum.org, where all the talks are posted. Uh, so the history conference from last spring is available online through Vimeo, again, through our website, PenobscotMarineMuseum.org. And so it was a great day of really thinking about the fisheries um, from a scientific standpoint. So Ted Ames from longtime fisherman and someone who's really thinking hard about the fisheries and how do we bring them back, but understands from both sides of the equation that fishermen need to make a living, but we need to sustain the fisheries. And so just really tied that all together. And Pat Shepard, who works on the policy side at Maine Center for Coastal Fisheries, uh, just took us through what have been the regulations through time. You know, we're at a crossroads and comparing lobster to the offshore fisheries. And we've learned some lessons with the lobster. Can they be applied to deep sea and vice versa. And then we had Peter Neal from World Ocean Observatory who asked some tough questions about sustainability and the scary thing, do we just put a moratorium on fishing for a while? Uh, which is food for thought. I don't think we need to go there, but we have to think about it. I mean, what are the extreme measures? Uh, Nancy Harmon Jenkins, who's a local food writer and chef, um, world-renowned, and who's also part of the our main marine fair this fall, talked about the food on our plate again. And so, what is 
how can we as consumers determine what we eat and how that's changed over time. Jeff Bolster from University of New Hampshire, who did a big study on cod and a couple of years ago, and his team looked at our fishing logs and what is that baseline? What are we trying to get back to? And has written The Mortal Sea, which is sort of a textbook for us here on campus, thinking about evolution over time in the fisheries and and what does that mean for the fisheries? Glenn Libby from Port Clyde Fresh Catch, another deep sea fisherman uh, from Port Clyde, who has started a co-op, a different way of thinking about fishing and how as a community we can make sure that we sustain fisheries over time and not going totally artisanal hook and line fisheries, but smaller scale than sort of the larger fisheries down in Portland, Gloucester, Boston, and thinking local, but also what impact he's had over the fisheries. And he gave such a great talk about the evolution of technology in the wheelhouse that we took a snippet and put it in the exhibit this summer because he just walks you through. You went from sighting, you know, taking sights off two different points of land and that's where you start the set for your long lining or your drag and you get to the next step with the two points of land, you know, which is using the world about us. And now we're staring at a screen for the most part. You know, we've got GPS, we've got sonars. And so he just walked us through that so well. Then we had Dave Jackson, who helped run the National Fisherman magazine, of which we've got that amazing collection of photos and was very instrumental in getting the collection here at the museum and just as a great resource. And he walked us through some of the pictures in his favorite and told us about how the magazine helped shape the American fishery and helps us think about the fisheries. So a great day and check it out online uh, on our website. That was Sipperly Good, the collections manager and curator at Penobscot Marine Museum. If you're just tuning in, this is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, host of Coastal Conversations here on WERU Community Radio, 89.9 FM in Blue Hill, 99.9 in Bangor, and online at WERU.org. This show has been pre-recorded and we're not taking calls at this time. Our show today explores fisheries issues in Maine, both in the past and today. Penobscot Marine Museum is taking a lead role in helping the public understand the complexities of Maine's fisheries through a year of events and exhibits, inspired in part by a pivotal photographic collection donated to the museum by National Fishermen, the nation's leading publication covering the commercial fishing industry. In that clip we just heard, Sipperly Good from the museum was just introducing us to various speakers who shared their story at a spring 2017 fisheries history conference held in Belfast. All of the talks she described are available on the Penobscot Marine Museum website. But today, we take most of the rest of our show to share one speaker's talk with you in its entirety. 
Glenn Libby, as you heard, is a fisherman and founder of Port Clyde Fresh Catch, and I'm delighted that he gave me his permission to share his story on the radio. Glenn has lived and worked through many of the changes faced by the industry in the last few decades. These changes have led him and other Port Clyde fishermen to found Port Clyde Fresh Catch, the nation's first community-supported fishery. A community-supported fishery, or CSF, works on the same principle as community-supported agriculture, where consumers buy directly from the fishermen who provide local, sustainably harvested, fresh Maine seafood. In his talk, Glenn walks us through the changes he's watched sweep over the industry, especially regarding the ever-changing gear and technology used to find and catch fish. Glenn's stories come from the perspective of four decades of fishing off the coast of Maine. Never lobster, but many other species. Towards the end of his talk, Glenn shares a few insights he's gained more recently from trying to establish a new way for fishermen to sell their harvest directly to the consumer at a scale that focuses on sustainability. Here's Glenn. What I know spans about four decades in my brief career of fishing in Clyde. <clears throat> but it's interesting listening to all the different speakers because you can take my little section of fishing history and expand it and pretty much what everybody's been talking about, even on a global scale, it's all reflected in what I've seen myself in my area. I'm just going to talk about fishing out of Port Clyde and the technological changes we've seen over time since the, about the mid-70s, right about the time when the Magnuson Act was started, up until now. And uh, we started out fishing back then, and we used landmarks. And that, what that means is, well, I should, I should clarify one other thing. The type of fishing that I did, I, did, I went uh, dragging on a trolley. We didn't use hooks, we didn't use land line, uh, long lines, and I never went lobster. But uh, we, uh, we would tow a net, and the doors, you heard Patrick talk about doors this morning, they spread the net open and you pull it along. And the things on the bottom of the net that weight the bottom down, and you've got things on the top, we call them cans, they float it up. Those were made out of wood back then. We used to cut down birch trees find a nice round straight one, drill the centers out, put them in, run, run them onto a wire, and then you'd have to put it overboard for a couple hours before the water pressure would drop enough water in it so it would actually fish, because you can imagine wood floats, and then that would be about like this, and as that soaked up, it would open up, and after it got soaked up, if you went fishing every day, it was fine, but uh, if you took a week off, say, it would dry out again, and you'd have to start over. But we'd use landmarks. We'd go out, I remember the, my brother and I went with the captain. It was a boat that my father bought. Uh, you heard people talk about the government giving tax incentives to buy boats. Well, he was a truck driver, and so he was, at the time, making about $400 a week. was, I guess, pretty good money. And, uh, boy, I need something to do with my tax money. Somebody said, well, you should buy a fishing boat. So, uh, <laughs> you know. So he did, <laughs> and that's a whole other story that I won't go into right now, but uh, 
he uh, we went the captain we went with he he'd go out and uh, he'd say okay you guys steer at so many degrees on the compass keep the RPMs on the you know the the engine RPMs at uh, fifteen hundred steer so many degrees for an hour and then wake me up. <laughs> we and then by the time you got there, uh, you hoped you were where you were supposed to be. He'd come out on deck. If it was a clear day and look, yeah, the 10-inch lined up over the, you know, Magana Cook Mountain, and Manhagen is three miles away on the radar. We did have radar at that And, yeah, it looks pretty good on the phalometer. The phalometer was a, uh, it had a paper in it, and the paper had gunpowder in it. And this thing would go around a metal stylus, and somehow it, the sound signal would burn a mark on the paper as the paper rolled, and it would draw a picture of the bottom, you know, if it went like this, it went like that. And if it was hard bottom, it would make two lines because it would be a sharper echo because it was bouncing off of rocks. You're trying to stay in the mud, right? Because you're towing a net that's basically made out of string. So you don't want to tow it into a rock because you'll tear it up. So we try to figure out where we were. And at the time, you know, we'd set out, we'd catch a lot of fish. They were probably, we had a 42-foot boat. That was a really big boat. And we'd go out, we'd start ground fishing about March. And then we'd end in July. And everybody would go lobster. And that was just the way it went. Probably had around the Port Clyde area. You had boats from Cushion, Port Clyde, Friendship, Tenants Harbor, Spruce Head, Rockland, and probably 50 boats between Manhegan and Matinicus. All fishing, most of them lobster boats. All catching a good amount of fish. And then we started getting into, uh, you know, the landmarks were kind of a problem and it was foggy. <laughs> Usually you, we'd try well sometimes if it was calm, you know, you'd use the radar, but uh, it was kind of frustrating too. I, I don't really remember too many details about back then, but I know we didn't fish too many days in the fog. The next thing that came along was a little rain where they broadcast the radio signals, the government was. And the first ones we had, you had to line up this sine wave with these dials. There was two sine waves. One be on the screen, the other one would come up. You had to line them up manually, and if you got them just right, it would give you a set of numbers. You could write those down in your notebook. Okay, I'm here. And then you'd go along, you'd tow along for a little ways, write down some more numbers. You had to keep lining the thing up. If you didn't get it just right, it wasn't where you, you wouldn't be where you were the next time if it was a little bit off. So it was kind of tricky, but it was a big advancement over uh, landmarks in the fog, that's for sure. <laughs> so then the next big thing that came along was the Loran C, they called it, and it was automatic. And it was about the time computers started to show up here and there. I mean, I remember at college, my roommate built a computer, and we didn't have them. Nobody had a personal computer back then, but he built one that could do math problems with flashing lights, and we were all fascinated by that. But it was both that same kind of uh, sophistication. But it would, it would lock onto the Loran signal, and it would just give you the numbers. You didn't have to do anything. Just turn it on, it was on, 
where you go. Then we started writing down numbers as we went, mapping basically by hand. You'd look at the number, you'd write it down, you'd see a piece of hard bottom, you'd write that down, and eventually you'd have these things mapped out. You would learn in your head how to take the look at the number and have that correspond to a compass bearing. And you could mark your compass bearings on the paper, you know, toe southwest, toe southeast, you know, like that, back and forth when you hit a certain number. Rock pile here, rock pile there. And you start to map it out. The next thing that made it easier was they come up with a thing called a paper plotter. And you plug it into the Loran, and it would draw the map for you. So you no longer had to sit there with a notebook. You could just watch it draw on a sheet of paper. About the same time, they started coming out with digital fathometers. We had the one with the with the uh, gunpowder and the metal stylus and the paper. The paper got really expensive. But uh, these ones, more like a TV screen, and they were much more sensitive, so you could really tell what the bottom structure was a lot better. Although, you know, if you spend any time on the water, you kind of get used to the equipment you have, and you know what you're looking at if you've used it enough. But these were, they were better. They were just better. The next thing that came along was the video plotter. And that was kind of like the video fathometer. That was electronic. And you could, that would draw on a video screen. And you could save your data on floppy disks. And some of the early ones didn't have too much capacity. So you had to have a big stack of disks. <laughs> so you could keep plugging them in as you went along and taking them out because you didn't have much memory in the thing. And one of the biggest advancements was the scanning sonar. We'd go, say for example, this section of floor is where you're towing your net. Just to clarify, for the otter trawl, the fishery around Port Clyde at the time, and it still is, and as far as I know, in my little window of time, it's mostly been for flounder. It's the American place, so I've never really heard of a big hook fishery for those. I don't know if there ever was one or there could be, but the otter trawl was the best way to catch them. And boy, there was a lot of them. And uh, they'd be on the mud, the flat mud areas. You'd tow your neck, you'd make a circle around. And you'd have it all mapped out with your plots. And now we've got a video plotter. And all of a sudden, we get a scanning sonar, and we've been going around here for years and years and years around this one circle catching fish. All of a sudden, you see now you can see this opening. Now, somebody that was cleverer than you probably already figured this out and was catching more fish because now he's towing through here and getting over here when no one knew you could do that because he's got the sonar. So now everybody's got a sonar, and they can see where everything is. So now you can really see the bottom stop towing it between, you know, and there's a lot less places for fish to hide then. So, uh, the next thing that came along was uh, advances in gear technology. We had, we went from the wood doors that spread the nets and the wooden rollers, we started the hard rubber ones. We had stronger twine, it was made out of poly, it used to be made out of cotton, now it's made out of poly, machine made, somebody talked about that. It was really tough. 
Um, bigger rollers, some of the big boats with lots of horsepower could tow up over the bottom. The 40 foot boat like I had became one of the smaller boats. And basically what we did, we'd fish on, we'd fish on these fishing grounds inshore in the springtime when the fish were coming in and spawning and you know, <laughs> when the fish are all getting ready to lay their eggs, they're all bunched out and why catching them? And pretty soon there wasn't any fish there anymore. So you had to have a bigger boat to go offshore and catch them where there still was fish. There was no more fish inshore, no more lobster boats. The boats got bigger. Then you had to use, we had, the, we had steel doors then. They were more efficient, burned less fuel. So you could tow a bigger net. Now you can catch more fish with a bigger net. Next thing that happened was a thing called ground cables. If you can picture it, I'm the net. The doors are out here. They kind of go like this. The fish are coming this way. You're, you're pulling it along like this. And the doors are this far apart. You add ground cables in here. What you do is, now the doors are out here and they're this far apart instead of this far apart. So as you're going along, the flounders that were over here that you were missing are now being herded into the net because they won't cross that. It'll stir up the mud on the mud bottom. Flounders won't jump over it, they'll herd. So they, you get all this technology and it's... <laughs> You're catching, it's like these other people were saying, it kind of masks what was happening and you were depleting the fish. Now that we've cleaned out the inshore spawning grounds, no fish are coming in shore. The lobster boat fleet isn't going anymore because they're not big enough to go outside. But we've got a bunch of big 50, 60 footers now in Port Clyde where we used to have a bunch of small boats. Probably had 25 of them. And we're all doing good, making plenty of money. <laughs> And uh, there was a way back when uh, we're still fishing. The fishing was still pretty good, as far as I can remember. You know, you know, historically, probably it wasn't. But as far as I'm concerned, what I saw in my little corner of the world, it was good. And uh, one of the guys, one crazy individual, saying, "We got to start towing a bigger mesh." I, when, we, when we'd go, everything that landed on deck, I remember seeing gray sole like this. And if you threw it overboard, you got yelled at. Because that's lobster bait. You can sell that. So uh, one guy even saying, uh, geez, I put a shrimp cod end on. You should see all the shrimp, all the fish I'm catching. Shrimp cod has got about two-inch mesh in it. <laughs> and he was catching all kinds of small fish, but it wasn't illegal. I don't know why more people didn't do that. It's probably a good thing they didn't, but they probably didn't want to have to sort through all those small fish. But, uh, you know, fish weren't worth much back then. It was hard to make a living. Even though we were catching a lot of fish, I remember uh, coming in and we had beautiful dabs. The dabs, I don't know how many of you are familiar with them, but they're, uh, they're a nice flounder. And, we had four culls. We had small, medium, large, and jumbo. Jumbos were like a small halibut. And uh, we don't see too many of those anymore, but I remember taking, coming in and hearing that the price was about two cents a pound. This was in the 70s or early 80s. And uh, saying, it's 
with that, we'll put them all into lobster bait. <laughs> so we end up selling uh, all these nice fish for uh, $5 a tray, probably 125 pounds, because you could make more on them. And then you'd, you'd send your fish down to, uh, some guy would show up with a truck, and again, I, I didn't know too much about it back then, being a teenager, but uh, they'd go on a truck, and maybe a month and a half later, you'd see a check for something, but by that time, you'd forgotten how many fish you caught, so. <laughs> and it was never enough. But there was times when it was good. I mean, we started running the boats ourselves, my brother and I, and we ended up buying two boats and then another boat for my sons and uh, things like that. But uh, after a while, we had all this technology, you know, probably, I don't know, 30 years. We started to have to have all the technology to catch less fish than what we used to catch in a day. We used to catch 5,000 pounds in a day, five, six, sometimes 10,000 pounds, just going out in the morning, coming in at night, doing it again every day, close to shore, five, six miles, 10 miles out. Now you're going 30, 40, 50 miles for four days to catch 5,000 pounds and you haven't used all this technology. So it wasn't too good. We <laughs> something's gotta change. Well, one of the ideas that our guys came up with, I remember having a meeting and said, what are we gonna do? We were, at that time, I uh, heard Patrick talk about Amendment 23 to the ground fish plan now. It was back there in Amendment 16. And uh, the thing was, all right, everybody come up with some ideas and bring them to the council and we'll see what we can come up with. And one of the ideas that we thought of was, uh, well, if technology got us in this mess, maybe less of it could get us out of it. So, <laughs> but the trouble was, if you unilaterally cut back on your efficiency, it's going to cost you. That's where Port Clyde Fresh Catch came in. We decided if we were going to do that, we were going to have to market our own fish and get more for them, which proved to be a little bit naive because it takes quite a lot of work to pull something like that off. And it's still going on and we're still learning, but it wasn't a quick fix by any means. But one thing that has happened over time all this technology, you know, like the uh, plotters, and the, we, we did, I, I left out the, the part about uh, GPS. That was another big advance. We went from Loran to GPS, and I remember scalloping. Scalloping, you tow pretty fast for scallops. You're towing your scallop drag along. Then you'd be going along towing, and then you turn around. You go on the other way and then back and forth, and you're going pretty fast. Well, with Loran, the Loran's still going like this, and you're already halfway back there. <laughs> so, with the GPS, it's just like it is when I was trying to find this place this morning looking at my cell phone. <laughs> Hit Google Maps, oh, yeah, there it is. And the car's driving on the screen, so it's right there. But, uh, <clears throat> You got that, now you can, now we've been able to identify sensitive habitat areas. And nobody can go in them because all the boats that go ground fishing now have vessel tracking systems on them. And for good or bad, the government can watch you where you are all the time. So you can't break into these closed areas that presumably will grow more fish 
it's a sensitive habitat areas and then they'll spill out and we'll all be better off. It does that. The other thing that's happened is the advent of the quota system and there's a lot that I really don't care for about that, the way that it's administered and how that it contributes to consolidation. But it also forces you to fish more cleanly and it's transitioned the uh, autotrol fishery from one of the dirtiest fisheries where I was talking about if you caught small fish and throw them over to get yelled at. That counts against your quota now. So that's money out of your pocket because now we have fish sizes and you can't legally sell those small fish. You have to throw them over, but you've also got to pay for monitors to go on your boat so they can see how many fish you're going to throw over, which is a whole other... We could have a whole other conference about that, but uh, they, uh, it incentivizes you to fish in ways that you're leaving the small fish in the ocean. So what's happening now is there's been a big resurgence of the dams. Um, basically what's contributed to it is we've wiped out the fishermen <laughs> and now there's all kinds of fish. Now. If we can avoid, once they build up back up in the spawning grounds, like been talked about with cod and everything else, if we can avoid wiping those out again, get that all working again, it will be on the road to something sustainable. But uh, the technology that we have, I mean, you've got the spawning grounds, there's an inshore closure of spawning grounds in Maine right now, and the only way they can tell that people aren't fishing there you've got these tracking systems, so technology is helping them. Um, the larger mesh sizes have made the gear really selective. We've got guys, the legal size for mesh right now is six and a half inches. Uh, I was talking to Randy Cushman the other day, and he's trying to maximize his dab quota, and there's so many dabs out there right now. He can afford to go with a seven and a half inch mesh. An inch doesn't sound like much, but it's a lot. That's a big difference. So he's leaving all the small ones, which is only going to accelerate. We cut back on the ground cables for the same reason, as you know, and to save fuel. We cut back on, uh, there was a point in time where the rollers got really heavy. The theory of the day was, if your throttle is not all, all the way down to the bulkhead, you're not fishing because it's just like, I don't know, the best thing I can think of is rats after a piece of cheese. <laughs> Somebody comes up with a new idea that it, it was wicked destructive. I mean, it's just digging up the bottom. Guys were using clam forks to dig through the pile. It was just a mess. And uh, that all went away because there was a lot of small fish being caught. So uh, now with the quota system, there's no incentive to do that anymore. Plus, it was burning up fuel and engines at an alarming rate. I mean, you had to rebuild your engine every three months, fishing like that, which is absolutely crazy. But uh, um, that stuff's not going on anymore. Not in my little corner of the world. I don't know what's going on anywhere else. But I got having talked to people, you know on both coasts and in Alaska and everywhere else, a lot of these stories are the same. It's not just exclusive to Port Vida or my little section of the Gulf of Maine. All the stories you hear about fishing communities, the problems are the same. 
And a lot of time the potential solutions are the same that can be employed here and there that will help with the recovery and ultimately long-term sustainability of these things. If you're just tuning in, we're listening to Glenn Libby, a fisherman and a founder of Port Clyde Fresh Catch. We are delighted Glenn gave us permission to share this talk, which he gave last spring at the Penobscot Marine Museum Fisheries History Conference in Belfast. You're listening to Coastal Conversations with me, your host, Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, here on WERU Community Radio 89.9 FM in Blue Hill and 99.9 in Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. This show has been pre-recorded and we're not taking calls at this time. So let's get back to Glenn Libby of Port Clyde Fresh Catch. At this point, he has started answering questions about his experience starting Port Clyde Fresh Catch, the nation's first community-supported fishery. Let, let me just say, when, when we started the uh, community-supported fishery program, we hijacked from the farmers. We uh, apparently were the first ones, anyway, I, that I, someone did the research. And that was remarkable to me. And now there's like almost 300 of them, and they all got basically the same principles. So that's that's pretty telling. That, uh, and I'm very pleased that we helped kickstart that. So it is having an impact, and, and on an individual basis, but in a lot of different places. So, I have a question. So. You mentioned this point where you guys sat down and said, what are we going to do? Yeah. Could you describe a little bit of process, how that accumulated to the point where you all sat down and said, what are we going to do? Because you knew for a while, and, and then... Yeah. So yeah. could you just describe like in it, a little more detail like how that came to a point where you all decided you had to do something? When you go back to what I said about, I don't know if I said it before or afterwards, but... Uh, when you go to the where I said we had to go out and use all this technology to catch the same amount of fish that we were catching in a day with bigger boats and yeah. way further offshore. Talking, talking and, to each other about it. Yeah. yeah. So it just, you know, there was no, you couldn't just keep getting bigger because yeah. it was going to collapse. It already was, the whole thing. So that was, that was pretty much the driver for it. People were just like... Thank you. Uh, Glenn, can you talk a little bit about what you've learned uh, sort of diving into the marketing end of the business? One of the main differences that I see between farmers and fishermen is that farmers have to market uh, basically their own products, and and fishermen typically uh, bring it in, land it to somebody else, and then they don't have to worry about it afterwards. What have you learned sort of crossing that line between being a fisherman and now being somebody who markets fish? I learned that you can't do both. Hey, you know, it's you, you're you're jumping into a market. You've also you've almost on this scale got to create a new market or uh, ride the coattails of one that fits what you're doing. You're not gonna be. We're not gonna jump in and be. Like you're not gonna see four cloud fresh catch trucks like you do main shellfish with fish imported from wherever, and there's a place for that. There's nothing wrong with that. Our market is different. It's more 
towards co-op stores and people who are into local food and things like that. Um, so you've got, to, you've got to identify what your market is and service that market. You've also got to figure out what it is. I mean, there's always the competitive part of it, but at small scale, that's really hard to do when you've got a lot of cheap fish around still, you know, relatively cheap fish. So you've got to find what you can do that's different and make it work. For us at this point in time right now, it's crabs. <laughs> that's the, we still do fish. We still get fish from the boats, but, and everybody does lobsters. So we've been doing crabs and that's turned into our biggest thing. And everybody wants crab meat, especially in the summertime. So that's a, I don't know if you call it trash fish, but it's certainly been underutilized. That was Glenn Libby, fisherman and founder of Port Clyde Fresh Catch, speaking at the Spring 2017 Fisheries History Conference hosted at the Hutchinson Center in Belfast by Penobscot Marine Museum. The museum has posted all the talks on their website in case you want to hear from any of the other speakers. We're going to wind our fisheries history show down today by circling back to Sipperly Good, who works at the museum. The museum is capping off a great summer focused on Maine's fishing industry with another event, this one a celebration of fisheries today. Maine Marine Fair, as the event is called, highlights all the foods from the abundant waters of coastal Maine. The two-day program, September 9th and 10th, will include talks, panel discussions, and educational tastings. It will feature fishermen, food producers, aquaculturists, researchers, scientists, and members of the food and culinary trades. I'm especially excited about this event because the museum has invited me, your host on Coastal Conversations, to moderate a panel discussion about the status of Gulf of Maine fisheries today. It should be a lot of fun. I'll have Bob Stenick, a researcher at UMaine, Carl Wilson from the Department of Marine Resources, Carla Gunther of Maine Center for Coastal Fisheries, and a fisherman, yet to be determined when I was recording this show, all ready to start this conversation. Maybe we'll share that with you all on another Coastal Conversations show. But for now, let's hear Sipperly describe how you could spend the weekend after next immersed in seafood conversations and tastings. So, um, Maine Marine Fair, and so people might remember Maine Fair, which was celebrating the land side a little more, although there was some um, fisheries in that too, but celebrating the bounty of the land and the sea. We started this conversation at our history conference, but now we're just focusing on the food. And so we'll start off with Paul Greenberg, uh, who wrote two books Four fish about focusing on tuna and cod and salmon and bass. And he gets into the aquaculture wild debate and American catch. And was many people might have just seen him on PBS's Frontline The Fish on My Plate. So he'll open up as our keynote speaker and help us think about what is the fish on our plate? How did it get there? Um, our favorite friend Natalie and her panel um, are the current state of the fishery. Where are we at? Um, what's out in the Gulf of Maine? How's it doing? You know, um, take a 
take the pulse of the fishery. Um, we're going to bring food trucks onto campus for lunch, and so you'll have a chance to taste the fish. Um, and then after lunch, Sebastian Bell from the Maine Aquaculture uh, will talk about, is aquaculture the solution? We know that maybe we don't have all the fish we need to feed the nation. Is aquaculture the way to raise fish? And some people say, no way. And so that's the place to have that debate. And then Polly Saltonstall from Maine Boats, Homes, and Harbors is going to end the day with how do we get locals to eat the fish? So we talk about the elvers are being exported to Japan, you know, to eat there. And then we're importing fish from Asia to eat. And so how do we eat the fish that are right in our backyards and create a market for that? And then Sunday we'll come back on Sandy Oliver who's an amazing fishing historian, will talk about preserving and tradition and how did we eat fish in the past. Uh, Nancy Harmon Jenkins is going to lead a panel of chefs that talk about from the chef's perspective, where do we go from here and preparing fish and what fish are we going to be eating in the future. Um, we're going to have uh, demonstrations. So... Well, you'll get to taste the oysters from the different parts of Maine. You know, is a Casco Bay oyster better than a one from North Haven? Um, I'll let you decide. And then also how to prepare these new fish coming up on the market. What do you do with that seaweed? Um, all those great things. And then we'll end with the food writers talking about where do we go from here. And from their perspective. I mean, they're reaching people through newspapers and periodicals, and so where do they see the future? Um, and then we'll have a, a dinner with Sam Hayward from 4th Street down in Portland and Laidley Dunn, who is another chef from the mid-coast of Maine, um, who are going to do an amazing meal of what, what, how are we going to prepare fish in the future? And so expect to see seaweed salad done in a new way, not necessarily the Asian influence, maybe. Um, and, you know, what's the sustainable fish out there and how do you eat it? So um, that will be exciting. So tickets, um, museum members get in free on Saturday. That's price of admission to the museum. Uh, Sunday with those demonstrations will be $40 with a discount for members and then dinner with Sam and Laidley will be $75 and that's September 9th and 10th and people can go to your website go to our website um, you can sign up online great and your website is penobscotmarinemuseum.org if Sipperly Good of Penobscot Marine Museum has whet your appetite for good seafood, good stories, good recipes, and good discussions, then maybe we'll see you at Maine Marine Fair on September 9th and 10th on the museum grounds in Searsport. Alas, we've now come to the end of our Coastal Conversations show today about Maine's fisheries history and seafood industry and the events happening this summer at Penobscot Marine Museum to celebrate this important part of Maine's economy and culture. I'd like to thank Sipperly Good of the Penobscot Marine Museum for sharing all kinds of information about museum events. I'd also like to thank Jessica Hathaway of National Fisherman Magazine for some insights into the magazine's history and the decades covered in the photo collection that they donated to the museum. 
Finally, I'd like to thank Glenn Libby, fisherman and founder of Port Clyde Fresh Catch, for allowing us to share his observations and stories about Maine's changing fishing industry. Coastal Conversations is produced with support from the Maine Sea Grant Program at the University of Maine, bringing marine science to Maine people. Join us from 10 to 11 a.m. on the fourth Friday of each month here on WERU Community Radio and streaming online at weru.org. Our show's theme music, A Following Sea, was composed and performed by Paul Anderson. Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program, and stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, host of Coastal Conversations, wishing you a good morning.